morning, and welcome to Valley Baptist Church. <clears throat> Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the last two verses there, and then also going into the first eight verses of chapter 2. And as you find your places, I do want to just thank you all again so much for uh, inviting me to come here and preach. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, it's really humbling. Um, but I want also to let you know that I'm praying for you and that a lot of times this is really hard for me. This week's passage is one that's hard to preach. It's, uh, it's something that can be hard to hear. It's something that can be hard for me to speak because it gives specific directions to four different groups of people, and I'm not a part of, four, of three of those four groups of people. And so it's hard for me to come here and to preach this. But like I said last week, we're subject to the Word of God. We follow it. We obey it. And so because of that, I'm wrestling with it to make sure I'm speaking what it says and that it's not me coming along and saying anything that the text doesn't. And so at the end of the day, if I'm stepping on your toes, my prayer is that it's not me doing that, but it's the words of Scripture. And I do want to remind you, like take it back to last week, the reason that sometimes this can be hard to hear is because we have lost our bearings as a church. So I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to speak what the, what the Scripture says and pray that it helps you understand um, so, with that disclaimer out of the way, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I will read Titus 1, 15 through 2, 8. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for giving me this incredible responsibility of teaching from your word, along with all the challenge and the difficulty that it can bring. And I thank you for this congregation and the grace they've shown me as I come in, almost from the outside. And I thank you that they do demonstrate so many of these qualities that this passage talks about, the qualities that characterize mature Christians, and that there are so many mature Christians in this room who have faithfully poured into the lives of younger Christians. Please bless our time studying your word together and help us learn well. And I pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so I'm reading from the book of Titus, starting in chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And so, as many of you know, I'm here doing an internship. Um, it's required by my school, but as I was thinking about this this past week and like thinking about my, my preaching, I realized many of my classmates go do internships with ministries they don't know, with people they don't know. And the ministries don't know them. So I'm incredibly thankful to be able to come here and see all these people who I know, all you people who I know, 
and you know me. And it's really just a super cool opportunity to come in and, and do that. And like, I'm incredibly thankful for that. And so when I first was talking to Gunnar about that opportunity, that just like, the idea of doing it here was super exciting. And then he mentioned preaching through the book of Titus, also super exciting. I've learned a lot already. I hope you guys are learning with me, and we'll keep learning throughout the weeks. And so one of the things that I've been doing that's required for my internship is I have meetings with Gunnar every week, and we've invited Joel to come in with us um, and just kind of come alongside and learn about preaching, learn about um, teaching from the Word. And so we typically meet twice a week. Um, the first meeting is usually on Mondays, and that's when Gunnar and Joel put me through the ringer about my sermon from the day before. Gunner usually plays bad cop. Um, but And then on Thursdays, we normally meet to talk about like what's coming up for the next week. And so it's really, really, really been helpful for me. It helps me, the more minds that get involved in putting together a sermon, the better. It's, like, it's hard work to put a sermon together. And so hearing input from Gunner and Joel has been really, really helpful. And so I remember one of the first times we were meeting, Gunner was just kind of like tearing into me, like you know, picking out every little thing that I could have said differently. And then he turned to Joel and said, now, what do you think? And Joel had some stuff to say. Nothing bad. He was a good cop. But what was interesting is the way Gunner talks to Joel. Gunner talks to me because I'm younger than he is in a certain way. But because Joel's older than him, he talks to him in a completely different way. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. Gunner's older than me. Joel's older than Gunner. But Joel told us that same day that there are guys out on the golf course where he plays who are much older than him who call him a whippersnapper. <laughs> and so the point, the point of what I'm saying is that each person, pretty much wherever you are in life, you can learn from some people, but there are people who can teach you things. And so that's one of the big points in this passage. And this is part of the process of sanctification. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, The word refers to God's work in our lives to make us more like him after we've been saved, to um, help us live with progressively less sin. So kind of with that like setting in place, let's look at Titus 1, 15 and 16. And so we see the first thing is that there's a statement about to the pure, all things are pure. And then immediately after that, we see a contrast. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure because both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So what's going on here? To understand what Paul's talking about, remember what we learned last week. What we saw was Paul highlighting the difference between what an overseer or an elder must be and what false teachers are. And again, within the context of like an overseer or a a church elder, like these are mature Christians. So he's highlighting a difference between mature Christians and false teachers. And so this continues in verses 15 and 16. The mature Christian is pure. The false teacher is defiled and unbelieving. But look at the end of verse 14. It's talking about men who turn away from the truth. Remember last week we learned that there are some teachers, some false teachers, who Paul wanted to be encouraged and refuted so that they would come back into what is true. The end of verse 14, he talks about men who turn away from the truth. These are people who have not return. They will not return. They're not humble enough to return. And so these are the people who he's saying are defiled and unbelieving. Their mind and their conscience are defiled. They deny God by their deeds. And so Paul has strong words for them. They're detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. 
None of these things are good. So I want to dig in a little deeper to understand the difference between the pure and the defiled and unbelieving. So if you'd flip toward the front of your Bibles to Romans 12, I want to spend a few minutes just to understand God's call on us as Christians to have a pure and undefiled mind and what that kind of looks like. So Romans 12, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we see a twofold command here in this passage. First, we see that Christians are to present their bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice. But second, what I'm going to focus on is this idea of having your mind be renewed, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is this even talking about? It ta- it's talking about like our minds and our bodies being called by God to certain standards. The Bible makes it clear here and in other places that simply acting in a particular way is not what God has called us to, but rather he's called us to be wholly transformed, to be, to be completely changed in our actions and in our thoughts. And it reminds me of my sophomore year at Moody. I took a class. Every student has to take it. It's called Christianity and Western Culture. It is a church history class. Um, nobody really likes it because it's a, large, it's a large class, about 200 people. Everyone has to take it. It's right after lunch. It's in a dark auditorium. You know, people sleep. So, but the professor... Um, Dr. Michael McDuffie has been teaching at Moody for about 20 years. Um, He teaches a lot of the upper-level theology classes. But he comes in and teaches this church history class to a group of sophomores. And he knows that not many people like the class. He gets that. But he still faithfully teaches it, and um, is he's just an incredible man. He loves his students. And so... I remember hearing something from him during one of these classes. I don't remember what he was talking about that day. I just remember this statement. He said, he told the class, pray to God, ask God to sanctify your imagination. Because your imagination is the devil's last stronghold. And what he meant by that is kind of this idea that you can do things and go places in your mind that you'd never do, never go in real life. The devil can use your imagination to take you to all kinds of ideas of sin that are bad. And so he's saying, no, ask God to sanctify your imagination. Ask God to make your imagination pure. And so based on this passage, based on Romans 12, this is what we're called to do. We're called to ask God to redeem our our minds, to sanctify our imaginations. And so if you flip towards the front of your Bible, Jesus has a lot to say about this as well. We're looking at from Matthew 15. And so this is familiar ground. Gunner's been preaching through Matthew for some time now. I don't know how long ago he would have gotten to Matthew, or he would have been in Matthew 15, but it's, it's been there. So Matthew 15, we're going to start in verse 10. And so just to set the stage, this is Jesus responding to the Pharisees. Pharisees were upset because Jesus' disciples had not washed their hands before they were eating. And just to put it in context, this is not just you run your hands under the faucet. This is like, the word is the same word we get our word for baptized from. 
It was a ceremonial washing. The Pharisees were upset because the disciples had not done that. So let's pick it up. Uh, Matthew 15, verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And so what we see is Jesus speaking to his disciples, saying these ceremonial traditions, these traditions of the Pharisees, the ceremonial laws, these don't make you pure. Because you can follow and observe every single one of those and still have a filthy and defiled imagination. And so if you flip back to Titus, back in Titus 2, sorry, Titus 1, 14 and 15, 15 and 16, this is exactly what, is, what Paul is talking about. He's referring to these false teachers who refuse to listen to, to um, any rebuke. They're teaching that you need to follow the ceremonial laws, but their minds are still filthy and defiled. And Paul is writing against them. Paul is speaking against them. He says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. You know, I remember when I was in high school, I went to, I went to camp pretty much every summer. Um, and I remember one of my counselors in particular. He's a PhD biologist. Works for the U.S. Navy with their marine mammals. I don't know why he took a week out of his summer every year to go spend with a bunch of smelly high school boys in the woods. I don't get it. I don't understand, but he did. And he made a profound impact in my life. He said something that I'll never forget. He said, what you look upon is what you become. And this is a lot like what Jesus is talking about in Matthew. It's not the, out, it's not the outside of the external. It's the internal. What you think about, that's what becomes impure. Like, that's what defiles you. And so, as we return to Titus, as we look here in Titus, we see the contrast between these people who are impure and then what Paul wants these Christians to be. And that contrast is highlighted as we go into chapter 2, verse 1. You see the first thing that Paul does? He says, but. Drawing a contrast. Remember last week I talked about the, the phrase, so that. Anytime you see the word, so, the word so that in the Bible, you need to pay attention because you're coming to a result or a conclusion. When you see the word, but, it's the start of a contrast. So the contrast here, Paul is showing the difference between these false teachers who are worthless for any good deed, and what he wants the Christians in Crete to be. And right here in verse 1, we see one of the major components. Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. 
I talked about this a little bit last week. We learned about it some with the requirements for overseers, the requirements for being a mature Christian, and that one of those is you have to be able to rebuke false doctrine. You have to rebuke false teachers. And so we see it again here. Paul is um, just building up this idea. He's explaining the obligation to reproving false teachers. But he's going into more detail now, and he's addressing it to more specific groups. And so we see the first group addressed in verse 2. Older men. Now, before I get into this too much, I do want to just recognize, I want to say I recognize how ironic it is that I'm the one standing before you to talk about this as a 21-year-old man who is not married. I am speaking out of very little experience. And many of you in this room have much more experience than I do and could speak about many of these things probably better than I can. But the reality is I'm going to speak what the words of the Bible have to say and you know, that's, I'm going to be faithful to the words of the Bible. I'm going to speak as much as I can and recognize that I don't have a lot of experience in the subject. And it's funny because when Gunnar first talked to me about this passage, he's like, oh, I'll be out of town. It won't, you know, no big deal. But then when he remembered that he, he actually wouldn't be leaving until today, he called me up. He's like, you know, we should really talk about this ahead of time. So um, then it's okay because Gunnar falls into this first group, the older men. Verse 2, verse 2, older men are to be temperate. We've seen this word before. I talked about it a little bit two weeks ago. Um, Men who are to be temperate. What does this mean? It's a consistency of actions. It's not, it's someone who doesn't fly off the handle at the little things. It's someone who is reliable, consistent, and faithful in their actions. They're to be dignified. Sensible. The word used for sensible is not a common word in the New Testament. So I'm going to come back to that. Because it shows up four times in this passage. There to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. I want to spend just a minute on that last one, and perseverance, the idea of perseverance. It's a word that we hear every now and again. But it has a special application for Older men, especially if they're pastors. Um, for the last couple of years, it seems like everywhere you look, every time I turn the news on, I'm seeing another story about a well-known pastor who has like, washed out of the ministry. They discovered a moral failing. failing. His church went bankrupt. And that's tough. It's tough for me to see that as someone who wants to go that direction, wants to be a pastor, to see all these examples, like people who are who have been pastors for a long time, just failing left and right. But at the same time, I think of men like Gunnar. I think of men like professors that I've had who have been Christians, who have been faithfully serving as pastors for years. That is what he's talking, that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about perseverance. The steadfast endurance. Being a pastor is hard work, but it's something that men are called to as something that is rewarded in the Bible. And so this becomes even more significant when we talk about Paul and where he was when he wrote this book. Remember two weeks ago when I went over the survey of the book of Titus, we learned that Paul wrote this book in the last years of his life. He knew that his time was drawing to a close. This is the second to last book that Paul wrote. And in his last book, 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. And it gives us this mental image 
of a man who had faithfully served Christ until the end. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. So then as we get into verse 3, shifting gears to talk about older women. We see they're first commanded to be reverent in their behavior. The word used here is a compound between the same word used in verse 1 to talk about doctrine that's fitting and then another word that talks about like what is fitting to the particular time. So the idea of being reverent in behavior is not like you know an old school church or a library. It's not like that kind of behavior. It's just the idea of acting the right way at the right time. Reverent in your behavior is just being appropriate for the situation. Then he goes on to tell older women specifically not to be malicious gossips. This is important. This is something that the word is the same word we get our, uh, our word for diabolical from. Malicious gossip is words spoken specifically about someone that are designed to be hurtful. And so we're commanded not to do those, not to speak those words. And the next thing is that they're not to be enslaved to much wine. This is something I want to be careful about. Um, I know Gunnar spent a bit of time talking about drinking alcohol. This is not a prohibition against drinking alcohol. The Bible does not prohibit drinking alcohol. There are commands, like in Ephesians 5.18, you don't have to turn there, about not being drunk and making sure that the control is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. We should never be controlled by a substance. But the point here is that we should not be consumed. We should not be enslaved to alcohol. And so, as a student at Moody, I sign a contract every year that says, among other things, that I will not drink. And part of that for Moody is it comes down to the fact that there are lots of people with different convictions who give money to students so they don't have to pay as much for their schooling. Also because there's an understanding that college students are dumb and will drink and be stupid. So for Moody, there's a no, no alcohol policy. But not for the Bible. And I want to make sure that's really clear. And Paul has bigger fish to fry than drinking alcohol. So, especially you see the next word, the next couple of words, teaching what is good. This is huge. Remember, I talked about this a little bit already. Each person can teach someone else. Each person can learn from someone else. I, tied the, I, I want to tie this back to my professor I talked about and then also the camp counselor I talked about. They weren't even trying to do this necessarily. They were just doing their li- like living their lives, going forward, just being normal, just doing their normal thing. But they each taught me something that was really significant. And that's the idea that's here. It's not that women are supposed to, not that the older women are commanded to necessarily go out of their ways to, to teach all these things. It's just like, this is their lifestyle. They continually throughout their lifestyle proclaim what is good, teach what is good. And we see this so that in verse 4. Remember I talked about this. You see so that, it's important. The older women are to teach what is good including all these things mentioned above, so that they may encourage the younger women. Other translations might say urge or train. And all these words kind of dance around an idea of mentorship. Um, And the, the point is that older women have a lot of life experience, which they can share with younger women. And this goes for older men, too. Older men have life experience they can share with younger men. Like I said earlier, I've been learning a lot from Joel and Gunner, but I guarantee they have older guys who they can learn from. Another example that 
I'm sure many of you can relate to is just the idea of where you get your, your, your advice from. As a college student, I see many of my friends making important decisions about grad schools and jobs and marriage. And for the world, it's really common to look to popular figures. I talked about Oprah last week. But as Christians, the principle is that we need to seek out advice from Christians. We need to talk to older Christians and learn from them. And, you know, I I jokingly reference Oprah. But the reality is she's a person who's held a position of influence over most of America for many years. And many people my age, many people older than me, will look to Oprah or other figures for, for advice. And that's not what the Bible commands. The Bible commands we're to look to older Christians for advice. So I want to encourage you, younger Christians, seek out advice from older Christians. Older Christians, seek out opportunities to give advice to younger Christians. And you notice this is kind of the reverse from what the passage says. The passage says that the older women should encourage the younger women. But I recognize that in today's society, it's not super common for younger people to seek out advice. They want to shun the older generations. They want to push them away. And so... For those of you who are older and have good advice to share, I encourage you, pray that you would have someone to share that with. Younger people, I encourage you, be humble enough to reach out to people who are older than you and ask for advice. So let's get back into the text now in verse 4 and see what exactly the young women are supposed to learn from the older women. We see the first command is that they are to love. They're to love their husbands, to love their children. And if you remember a couple of verses earlier, the men were also commanded to love. It's not really that big a surprise because the men were commanded to be sound in love. And it's also significant because in the culture at the time, loving your family was something that was valued. And Paul wanted everyone to, he, Paul wanted the Christians to be a good example to the rest of the world around them. Moving on now to verse 5. Commanded to be sensible. I told you that word would be important. Commanded to be pure refers to moral purity, which would have been a major issue at the time of Paul's writing. They're told to be workers at home. I want to be careful here because this is not commanding women not to have an occupation. That is not what the text says. The point that Paul is making is that for women who have a family, women who have a husband, have children, they need to be taking care of their responsibilities to their husband and to their children. And so for any of you women in the, in the building who do have a job, Paul does not discourage that. Paul just says, take care of your family. The next thing we see is that a woman must be kind. And then we get into the one that's really not popular today. Being subject to her own husband. Now, like I said, I'm not married. I'm a young man. I feel like I'm very unqualified to teach about this. And I recognize that many of you in the room could say a lot more about this than I can. Here's what I will say, though. The word used for subject, being subject, is the same word that's used in other contexts within, like, for military men. Military men are to be subject to their commanding officers. And kind of the idea behind it is a willing subjection and not one that's motivated out of fear. It's a... It's a subjection by choice. 
And I also want to be really clear. This has been used by many people to cover situations of abuse. This word does not command. This passage does not command a woman to be subject to her husband in situations of abuse. Also notice that it says only to her husband. Women are not subject to any other men, only to their husband, according to this passage. And so after all these items, we see another so that statement. All of these commandments for behavior are so that the word of God will not be dishonored. I touched on this a minute ago, but the idea is that Paul wants Christians to live in such a way that it brings glory to God and that it illuminates the gospel. He doesn't want the way Christians live to make the word of God look bad. I've encountered many people in my lives who say they're Christians, but then walk out the door and live in a way that looks exactly like everyone else. And this goes right back to what we were talking about in the beginning as we were talking about verses 15 and 16, people who profess to know God but deny him by their actions. And this is going to look different for each person here. How you live your life in a way that brings honor to God is going to be different for each person. It's super important, though, and something that can be hard for us in our day-to-day life. Look at verse 6 now. It says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And so here again, we see this word for sensible. It refers to knowing how to act and what is appropriate to the situation. So for me, being sensible can mean sometimes when I'm in school, choosing not to go out with friends and instead to stay home and do homework. But other times, it means putting the homework away and talking to a friend who needs me. It's not so much of a rigid guideline as it is knowing what's appropriate to the situation. You know, Gunnar texted me last night, and he was going to come and kind of review my sermon with me. And I told him, okay, that's fine, but I need to be done by 7.30. And so he immediately texted me back. He's like, what are you doing? Because I guess he thought I was going to go out and party. But that was not the case. That would not have been something that's sensible. The point is, be sensitive to what's appropriate at the time. And so... Before you look at this and see that the young men only get one verse and say, you know, think that we get off the hook easy, I want to remind you that Titus was a young man. So the next two verses that are specifically written to Titus also apply to all young men. It says, verse 7, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Remember what we learned last week about being above reproach? This idea of being steadfast, so faithful to the scriptures that if anyone even brought an accusation against you, it would be ridiculous. Paul defines it more clearly here. Titus is an overseer he's because he's a mature Christian. But in part of that, it's because Paul knows that he's capable. Paul knows that he's above reproach. And so as Paul encourages him in this, he explains to him that others are going to look to him for an example. And he reminds him to continually live the faithful Christian. And, you know, this idea of being a good example is something that ties right back into what I was saying earlier about mentoring and, like, following an example. Um, I look to my parents as a great example of what a godly marriage is. And so when I get married, I know that I can ask them for advice, I can ask them for counsel, because they've lived it and I've seen them live it my entire life. And so Paul wants Titus to be this good example for the Christians who are around him. 
And so then we see he wants them to do this with purity and doctrine. He wants them to be dignified. He wants them to be sound in speech. But you notice what isn't in there? Nothing at all about a degree in theology. Nothing at all about being a good public speaker. Nothing at all about knowing how to outline a passage or anything like that. And so the point, he, the point that I want to make here is that I'll be the first to tell you that a degree in theology um, and these abilities to, to speak are not required for being sound in doctrine. They're definitely helpful. And as I think back on classes that I've taken in theology and in preaching, they're very, very helpful. Those are things that I treasure and value. But I want you all to know, you don't have to take those to be a faithful Christian to teach the Word of God. The point, though, is that the way you live your life is what's important. And we see this. We see this in verses 7 and 8. He says, Paul's final statement, so that the opponent will have nothing bad to say about us. Paul is concerned that the message of the gospel is not damaged by Christians who live improperly. So remember two weeks ago, when I first started preaching, we learned about the main themes of Titus, salvation and sanctification. Both of these themes show up here. First, in that Christians need to be living lives of purity, but also that part of the reason for this is that the message of the gospel is not damaged. And so this is the part of the sermon where normally I would step back and say, okay, so what? kind of explained what the passage means, told some stories to illustrate the meaning, poked some fun at Gunner, um, talked about how it applies to our daily lives. But at the end of the day, what matters is whether or not you have known Christ, whether you have trusted him for salvation, and whether you have accepted the gospel so that you can be growing in your faith. Part of growing in your faith is being willing to teach others, being willing to learn from others, Part of it is being careful to consider whether or not your actions are honoring or dishonoring the word of God. Remember, like I said last week, the word is our authority. We are subject to it. Even in the things that are hard to hear, like some of the things that this passage contains, we need to consider these actions based on what the Bible says and not on what the world says. As easy as it is to listen to the world, we need to listen to the Bible so that we can grow and so that nobody can say anything bad against us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace and the humility that we need to be obedient to your word. Give us the strength and the confidence we need to follow it, even when your word is the exact opposite of what the world says. We know that you have called us to be mature Christians, and we pray that you would help us to grow, help us to learn, help us to continually encourage one another, help us to build each other up in faith and hope and love so that the world can see us as ambassadors of the gospel and so that they truly can't say anything bad about us. I pray all this in your name, and I thank you for this day. Amen.